A near monopoly on drug making, most pharmaceutical supply chains now trace back to China. But one country is set on fixing the problem, and the U.S. is poised to benefit. The U.N. High Commissioner's visit to China has come to a close. It drew criticism from human rights groups, who say the organization's approach to the visit harmed U.N. credibility. Taiwan readies itself for the worst-case scenario. Its military just conducted a round of annual drills involving the launch of various anti-air and anti-ship missiles. Flood season in China has begun. Southern provinces are already reporting deaths amid torrential downpours, including those of school children. And we look at the key takeaways from Secretary State Blinken's speech on China. Former diplomat David Stilwell breaks down the best ways to deal with Beijing. Welcome to China in Focus, I'm Tiffany Meyer. One country has a near monopoly on drug making, and it's not the U.S. America leans heavily on China and India for medicine manufacturing, and on closer inspection, India is dependent on China for its raw materials. That means most pharmaceutical supply chains trace back to China. Now, India is trying to fix that through an ambitious plan. NTD's Sean Marshall tells us more. A third of the medical pills consumed in the United States are made in India. India is the third largest drug manufacturer by volume, but India is very dependent on ingredients that come from China. One government report says India imports 68% of its active pharmaceutical ingredients from China because they're cheap. Another report puts it at 85%. Another report says drugs that use these Chinese ingredients include penicillin and azithromycin. To fix this, India launched the production-linked incentive scheme. This PLI scheme was aimed at incentivizing the industry in terms of increasing local production of such APIs or KSMs so that the dependence on China can reduce to some extent. Deepak Jatwani is an assistant vice president at credit ratings firm ICRA Limited, the Indian affiliate of Moody's. The firm does credit ratings for Indian pharmaceutical companies. Jatwani says the total investment is around 210 billion Indian rupees, or around 2.7 billion U.S. dollars. We expect that the overall import dependence, which is as high as 65-70% uh, at present, to go down by almost 25 to 30 percent over the next five to six years. And some of India's largest pharmaceutical companies are involved, including Sun Pharmaceutical Industries, Dr. Reddy's Laboratories, Lupin, and Aurobindo Pharma. Sean Marshall, NTD News. And in the UK, one in four of those pills is made in India. The UN High Commissioner for Human Rights has concluded a six-day visit to China. It was the first trip of its kind to the country in 17 years. The Chinese Communist regime is accused of imprisoning more than one million Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities in the western Xinjiang province. What's more, the U.S. has accused China of committing genocide. Though Commissioner Michelle Bachelet said Saturday that her visit to China was not an investigation. She insisted that her visit to China was not supervised and said she spoke with candor during her official meetings. That's despite international criticism of China for its human rights record and demands that her visit act as a probe into what's happening there. The U.S. had termed Bachelet's trip a mistake. Last week, international media published the Xinjiang police files, the largest leak about the Xinjiang labor camps to date. 
Bachelet's comments avoided direct criticism of China, upsetting several human rights groups. Agnes Calamard, Secretary General of Amnesty International, says Bachelet's visit left an impression that she has walked straight into a highly predictable propaganda exercise for Beijing. Also remarking on the visit, the World Uyghur Congress. The organization is an international body of exiled Uyghur groups that seeks to represent the ethnic minority. The group says the visit became a part of Chinese propaganda used to whitewash the Chinese Communist Party's crimes against humanity and genocide against the Uyghurs. The organization linked an article to its website on Monday titled How the UN Became a Tool of China's Genocide Denial Propaganda. On top of that, an organization working to end slavery and human trafficking called Arise also criticized Bachelet's statement. It said her comments not only damaged the cause of Uyghur freedom, but also harmed the credibility of the United Nations Human Rights Council. Next, let's head to the Indo-Pacific, where Taiwan's military recently conducted its annual missile drills. According to footage released by Taiwan's Navy headquarters on Friday, various types of anti-air and anti-ship missiles were launched from the island's eastern waters. That includes U.S.-made standard missiles. Taiwan's self-made missiles were also sent off from the Jioping military base. Meanwhile, the island's Air Force launched a French-made Maika anti-air missile from a Mirage fighter jet shortly after taking off from the base. Taiwan's Navy said the four-day drills were conducted to test Joint Forces combat readiness, adding that they demonstrate the troops' determination for protecting the island and safeguarding the security of the Taiwan Strait. A group of Taiwan radio enthusiasts is keeping tabs on the skies and the airwaves for incursion by Chinese planes. They say the project's hope is to raise awareness about the near-constant threat Beijing poses to the island. The coast looks clear for 50-year-old Robin Su with his camera lens ready to go. But he's not snapping pictures of the sunset. Su is looking out for threats in the skies off Taiwan. He's also listening in. Another day, another radio warning from Taiwan's Air Force to a Chinese jet entering the island's air defense zone. Su is a former Navy radar operator. And from dawn to dusk, he and a team of radio enthusiasts keep tabs on the skies and the airwaves for incursions by planes from neighbor mainland China. The team has set up dozens of reception points in the hills. After Sue tunes in every day, he publishes the recordings online for the public to hear. From early morning until now, there have been around five broadcasts. What I can currently tell from my system is that there was one drone, one Y-8 tactical jamming plane, and one Y-8 anti-submarine plane. All of those are essentially coming in to gather electronic information of military tests and drills. Sue's team has over 16,000 Facebook followers and local media keeping up with his work. They've counted over 300 warnings to Chinese warplanes so far this year, up 3% from the same period last year. China claims Taiwan as its own, and the self-ruled island has complained of repeated Chinese Air Force missions around its territory for years. The Defense Ministry details the incursions daily on its website. But Su hopes his project raises awareness of the near-constant threat that China poses. In the past, our government has continuously deceived us. They lied to us by saying that there was peace between China and Taiwan. 
So when I discovered that the frequency of Chinese military aircraft entering our ADIZ kept going up, how can this be described as peace? I started to leak this situation together with some local media. China has yet to fire a shot or come close to Taiwan's shores, staying within its broader air defense identification zone. But the Taiwanese government likens Beijing's flyovers to gray zone warfare tactics, which force them to scramble and intercept Chinese airplanes on the daily, exhausting their air defenses. China's defense ministry and Taiwan Affairs Office did not respond to requests for comment. 30 Chinese military aircrafts entered Taiwan's Southwest Air Defense Identification Zone on Monday. The Taiwanese side sent out planes, issued radio warnings and deployed air defense missile systems to monitor the activities. According to an economic policy draft, Japan aims to drastically strengthen its military capabilities. The country is worried that Russia's invasion of Ukraine could lead to instability in East Asia. The draft does not give details about spending, but says for the first time that there have been attempts to unilaterally change the status quo by force in East Asia, making regional security increasingly severe. For Japan, threats come from three regional actors. Japan has territory disputes with China and Russia, and there's a nuclear threat from North Korea. When North Korea conducts missile tests, the missiles sometimes drop into the waters close to Japan. Heavy rains hit southern China over the weekend, flooding several provinces. State media reported 15 deaths. In the Guangxi Autonomous Region, two elementary school students drowned in the disaster. Flood water carried them away during their walk to school on Friday. In Jiangxi province, nearly four inches of rain poured down on the area within 12 hours over the weekend. Rivers swelled, bridges were washed away, and houses and roads were flooded. Some regions in Fujian province were also hit with heavy rains. Storms dumped almost nine inches of rain on the regions within 12 hours, setting a new record. In some villages, traffic, electricity and telecommunications were interrupted. According to state media, at least eight deaths were reported in the province. Due to the Chinese Communist regime's history of underreporting disaster figures, that number can be higher. Several deaths were also reported in Yunnan province. Flooding there submerged cars and houses while scattering debris. Trees were also uprooted, with some of them falling onto parked cars. The official report said that five people drowned and three were missing as of Friday. Weather forecasts report that it will continue to rain across China for the next few days. Let's take a closer look at Secretary of State Antony Blinken's speech on China. What sensitive keywords appeared in his remarks? And what do they mean for the U.S.'s approach towards Beijing? We sit down with former Assistant Secretary of State David Stilwell to find out. General Stilwell, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to have you on the show. Thanks for uh, having me. So recently, Antony Blinken gave a speech kind of comparing the U.S.-China policy, and he mentioned how the U.S. isn't seeking a Cold War with China. So what would it take for us to be in a Cold War? Yeah, the Cold War idea is loaded. 30 years ago, with the demise of the Soviet Union, uh, we beat our swords into plowshares. Peace broke out all over. We had the unipolar moment where the U.S. ran things very well and peacefully for 30 years, and here we are back to conflict. I'd say that conflict is the natural state of things. I mean, just look at history, global history. Conflict is the norm. The last 30 years have been the aberration. So the allergy and the resistance 
to using the word Cold War uh, is um, understandable, but it's unfortunate. Look, we would like to extend this period of peace, but we have challengers in, in Russia and China who uh, want things to be done differently. They don't like the fact that the U.S. Uh, has such influence in the world. Uh, and if you want to call that Cold War or, or you just want to call that the natural state of things, it doesn't change the situation. It, it, conflict is, has become uh, more the norm than the uh, exception. And so also in the speech, there was the term of competition and also cooperating, sharing interests and stuff. But in the fields of, say, solar panels or EVs, it seems China has a lead. So what would be some other areas where the U.S. can compete with China? We know how to compete. We're very good when we're competing. In fact, I think we're, the U.S. is at its best when we're competing. And so if the competition, if we don't get the PRC to play ball on environment, which they aren't, by the way. If you read the Paris Agreement, it's ridiculous what they signed up for. But it says is the PRC is going to continue to pollute, not only at the current rate, it's going to continue to accelerate its output of carbon until 2030, at which point it will begin to then start slowing its output of carbon. That Look, they're going to do whatever they do anyway. I think we should stop trying to ask the Chinese side to cooperate in terms of environment and work around them. Because there's not, it's clear after all this time, they are not going to do anything that works against their national interest. So, again, I think the use of the word cooperate uh, is, is unfortunate. I would rather, you know, talk about strong diplomacy that, uh, that makes it impossible for the PRC to conclude otherwise, that they have to do these things by um, asking them, begging them uh, to do what we know is the right thing. They won't do that until forced. Coming up, a close-up on the bargaining chips the U.S. has in its arsenal when dealing with the Chinese Communist Party. And a look at what Washington can do to deter Beijing from invading Taiwan. Find out more from our sit-down with a former Assistant Secretary of State after the break, here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Next, former Assistant Secretary of State David Stilwell talks about his take on strategies to bring Beijing to the negotiating table and shares the best message of deterrence he thinks the U.S. can send to China over the Taiwan situation. Here's what he had to say. In general, Stilwell, you mentioned how it takes two sides wanting to work together. So, with as part of Blinken's speech talking about China willing to work together with the U.S. for the good of the people, how likely do you see that playing out? Our approach um, was not to chase them, was to wait until they wanted to talk, until they felt significant pressure and realized that they would have to come to an agreement with us, rather than just sitting there waiting for us to always, as we do reflexively, and it's not a bad thing. This is this is the American spirit is we want to work with people. We want positive outcomes. But in this case, we're going to have to, you know, again, gird up for conflict and, and play, fold our arms and wait till they come to us. And so um, words of cooperation, I understand we want to soothe the feelings of the region and others. I get that. But uh, you can't telegraph weakness to the Chinese Communist Party. They love, they thrive on that stuff. We're going to have to telegraph strength uh, and just Tell them we are here when you are ready to negotiate or talk. Doors open, but meantime, we're going to continue to work with the Quad, with AUKUS, and with any number of other growing 
multilateral uh, approaches and uh, formations to resist the PRC's uh, excesses. And there's going to come a point where they realize uh, that they have contained themselves. This is another use of language where they accuse others of containing them. No, no. What PRC has done on the border with India has created a, a strong anti-Chinese sense in India uh, with ASEAN, with Australia, with Japan, and us. Uh, I could point to specific actions that have gotten all those entities and countries to take the current position they are taking. China's containing itself. And uh, right, we, we need to make sure that's clear. Uh, there's nothing we can do to help them stop containing themselves. They're gonna have to make a decision to do that. And when they're ready to talk, we're, we're, we, we're here. But uh, chasing them is not gonna work. And on the note of telegraphing strength, it seems, especially when it comes to Taiwan and the Indo-Pacific region, Blinken didn't really mention the military aspect, but rather diplomacy. So how important is the military aspect in these situations? Obviously, it is important, um, but I think in the past we have overplayed it. So I, again, I applaud the um, conversation about things other than military, especially from the State Department. But we've had the defense um, has come on pretty strong uh, on these topics, and and what what the message Beijing receives isn't necessarily the podium speeches; it's the activities in the region. That is the message that. that so we, I'm I'm happy that we didn't pound that uh, bang that uh, gong too much. Uh, instead, focusing on, as we talked about, the broader spectrum conflict, the political, e uh, economic, for sure, uh, information and otherwise. Uh, the, the military part will always be there. But again, you can't show weakness there, too. And uh, there, I can't point to anything that's been more helpful than that than Japan's commitment to come to Taiwan's aid should it be attacked. Now it's the U.S. and Japan. Australia has said it would be inconceivable that they wouldn't be involved in some way. It's not just the U.S. military arsenal. It's now a multilateral group that's going to cooperate to do this. That, that's the best deterrent message we can send. General Stowell, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to have you on the show. Good talking to you. See you. Now let's turn to an update from Germany. The country's economy ministry has refused a request from carmaker Volkswagen. It says it won't provide the company with guarantees to cover new investments in China, citing concerns over human rights violations in the Xinjiang region. Volkswagen has a joint venture plant in Rumchi, the capital city of Xinjiang. Western countries and rights organizations say ethnic Uyghurs face torture and detention in the area. Germany is scrambling to free itself of dependence on Russian gas. That's after being caught off guard by Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. Economy Minister Robert Habeck addressed relations with Beijing last week. He explained the German government is now reassessing its ties with China and will place greater weight on human rights. The U.S. is shifting focus back to the Indo-Pacific region and calling for cooperation from Europe on China issues. As Europe's biggest economic power, Germany's strategy could create ripples on the global stage. Has the country's attitude towards China changed since the new chancellor took office? NTD's Chenny Wu gives us an update on how the situation stands. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz took office last December, ending the 16-year rule of former Chancellor Angela Merkel. The new leadership under Scholz claims to emphasize a value-based foreign policy that focuses on democracy and human rights. During his first official trip to the Asia-Pacific region last month, Scholz visited Japan. 
He said Germany seeks closer ties with countries that share democratic values and that it was no coincidence that his first official trip to the region was to Japan rather than Germany's top trading partner, China. This marks a shift in attitude from Merkel, who largely turned a blind eye to China's human rights abuses, prioritizing policies that benefited economic cooperation. And some members of Scholl's cabinet are pushing for an even harder stance on China. Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock in December called on the European Union to ban goods made with forced labor. It's a ban that would apply particularly to China. And in a newspaper article, she called Communist China a systematic competitor and urged democratic countries to defend their values and interests through foreign policy. But that's easier said than done. China has been Germany's largest economic partner since 2015. Last year alone, the two countries exchanged almost $270 billion worth of goods. Despite Scholl's remarks in Japan, Chinese state-run media reported that the chancellor called for strengthening cooperation with China at a virtual meeting with Chinese leader Xi Jinping earlier this month. As of now, there haven't been any major changes to the relationship between Germany and China. Chenny Wu, NTD News. To end today's episode in Italy, the city of Bologna is set to launch a pilot program to reward citizens' good behavior. Critics say it's a social tool that resembles the Chinese Communist Party's own social credit system to monitor and control its population. Here's NTD's France correspondent David Vives with more. Bologna plans to introduce a social credit system to reward citizens' good behavior. Italy's seventh-largest city has said it wants to launch a pilot program this autumn with an app called Smart Citizen's Wallet. It is designed to reward what officials deem citizens' desirable behavior, such as following traffic rules, recycling or using public transport. But critics point out the similarities to the social credit system employed by the Chinese Communist Party. The system in China collects a vast array of citizens' data and then assigns them a score. Authorities have already banned people from flights, denied spots to universities and even confiscated people's dogs, among other punishments. Their names might also end up on the blacklist consulted by companies seeking to hire employees. While the Bologna Smart Citizen app currently doesn't plan to punish citizens, the comparison with the Chinese social credit system draws critics in the country. Olivier Piacentini was born in the Bologna region. To him, the new hub shows to what degree communism has taken root in his country. Bologna is very beautiful and I invite you to visit. But it has a single fault. For a long time, it's a region that has always been communist-friendly. And I'm very worried, because we can see that the policy that is being implemented in China is starting to spread to European countries. He says Italy has strong economic ties with the Chinese Communist Party. Italy is one of the countries in Europe that has the strongest commercial ties with China. And moreover, it has very large Chinese communities, for example, in the textile regions near Florence, which is also Tuscany, a communist region. Tuscany will soon follow the same modus operandi. The app Smart Citizen has already been launched in a trial run in Rome. A local Bologna newspaper compared the app to collecting points at a shopping mall. But the amount of data gathered by the app 
might bring up privacy concerns. There is another thing that worries me a lot, if you like, and that is that there is a sort of collusion between the methods of the Communist Party and the world created by big tech companies. This is a system where a city or a state is monitoring and also deciding what's good and what's bad behavior. But there's also behind this the idea of the gradual erosion of privacy. Piacentini says he doesn't believe Italy wants to copy Chinese Communist Party's policies out of a shared vision of communism. Rather, it is the power relationship that created this situation. In other words, China's economic weight and Italy's dependence on trade with the CCP impacts Italian domestic policies. In a book called The Mirage of Globalism, Piacentini says China is gaining leverage over Europe one step at a time as globalization goes on. You have to remember that Emmanuel Macron, a year and a half ago, I think, he said, we think that the world as it is, in the context of globalization, will change China. In fact, the opposite is happening. We can ask ourselves today if it is not China that is changing the world. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching and see you tomorrow. Presenting the heritage of traditional Chinese martial arts, promoting martial ethics and reviving the true tradition. The 2022 NTD International Traditional Chinese Martial Arts Competition Preliminaries will be held in New York and Taiwan. On August 28th, the finals will be broadcast live online worldwide. Registration hotline 188-477-9228. For more information, please visit martialarts.ntdtv.com.